Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Jill on Money, we are delighted to have an economic correspondent in the house. Becoming the person who can push yourself into areas where you're uncomfortable, it's something that you need to practice and do over and over again. It's not a a trait you're either born with or not. It's a skill you can cultivate in yourself, that adaptability. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. You know, sometimes I get my best guests by tackling them while they are unaware, sitting in the CBS This Morning green room. That's what I did with Neil Irwin. He is a senior economic correspondent for The New York Times, and I have been reading him for years. He is here to talk about his new book, How to Win in a Winner-Take-All World. In this interview, we go from the economy to markets to the book itself, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So here's our interview with Neil Irwin. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jill. We start every interview with an important question. You ready? I'm ready. Best financial or career decision you've ever made? I I think it was uh, five years ago when I left the Washington Post to join the New York Times and start uh, the Upshot, which is the team I work on there to do analytical journalism. What is the upshot for people who do not read the New York Times regularly? What are you trying to do with that column? So we're trying to uh, explain and analyze the world of politics, economics, uh, and and we have a little fun. So we use all kinds of graphics techniques, uh, more write with a little more voice, a little more of an explanatory tone to try and make sense of the world. I do economics, so I'm I'm trying to take all these complicated things happening in global financial markets and the Federal Reserve and things like that and write that in a very accessible way to help people understand what the heck is going on. So you wrote a previous book about the financial crisis, right? I did. The Alchemist? That's right. Okay. How are you feeling 10 years after the financial crisis? You think we're in decent shape? So we're in decent shape now, but there are all these storm clouds on the horizon that make me nervous. In a lot what of makes you nervous? So first of all, the simple version is uh, if you look at the bond market, and I know not most people don't look at the bond market every day, but long-term interest rates all over the world remain extremely low. And what that's signaling is that markets are expecting low growth all over the world for a long time to come. Uh, and I think that leaves us very vulnerable to any kind of shock or problem that in a normal time might be the kind of thing we could ride out. Uh, you know, I think we're, we're, we're much at greater risk now because of that, you know, the trade wars being one example of one of those risks right now. Okay, because you write about the economy, I'm gonna, I'm, I promise we'll talk about the book, sure. but what, I mean, while you're here, it's all connected. I might as well. When you talk to someone like Jay Powell, you're not gonna wrangle something out of him He's not probably not going to make a mistake and say something he shouldn't say. What is your goal when you interview someone like him? I think the goal is to pull at threads that force them to explain their thinking and their way of approaching the world that then enables all of the rest of us to understand what they're going to do and why. And um, as you say, look, these are these are professionals. You know, they're they're they don't do things lightly. You know, sometimes it's just getting them on the record saying things that maybe if you read between the lines, you could already guess, but making them actually say it on, you know, in, into a microphone. Uh, I mean, a version of this, I, I actually had a, another opportunity to interview Jay Powell back in January at American Economic Association. And, you know, I, I asked him, so if the president asked you to resign, uh, would you? And he said no very quickly. Um, and that's what I suspected. But getting him to actually say, no, I'm not going to quit just because President Trump wants me uh, out, I think was an important thing to get on the record. All right. So now we're talking about the economy. So you said we're in a slow growth, a slower growth than last year. We, are. we had the tax cuts, mostly corporate tax cuts last year, yep. fueled growth. 
So describe the economy that most of us wake up and encounter on a day-to-day basis right now. Look, this is now the longest expansion on record. We've been going 10 straight years with growth, but it's been very slow, uh, kind of uneven growth. Um, And look, the economy is a lot better than it was three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, But it was in really bad shape five or 10 years ago. And I think what we now have is a labor market that's really the healthiest it's been in the you know in 20 years which is really saying something so if you want a job there's low unemployment employers are having trouble finding uh, people uh, you actually have some leverage for the first time in a long time to ask for higher wages for a more flexible schedule for more vacation time whatever it might be you know that's a that's a healthy thing that's a healthy development but at the same time we have this very low inflation very low long-term interest rates, that kind of makes this economy brittle and it makes it, uh, creates a risk. If something does start to go wrong, the Fed doesn't have much room to cut interest rates. Uh, there's there's not a lot of, um, you know, confidence that, that if things do take a turn, that, that it won't kind of spiral out of control. When you think about the the economy and the kinds of businesses that are thriving, we think of so many of these huge names. So, you know, even just going back to the financial crisis, we had like too big to fail, but now they're even bigger. And we think of the domination of some of these tech names. So, uh, you know, the fangs with maybe a little Microsoft on top. (laughs) So what are the conditions that led to these mammoth companies dominating? Yeah, I think this is one of the most important overall trends with with the economy over the last 20, 30 years. Um, and I think we're only coming to grips now with all the implications of it. And it's, as you say, it's uh, what economists call superstar companies. It's the rise of these winner-take-all markets where a handful of companies end up dominating major industries. It's true in banking. It's true in retail. It's true in technology. It's true in, I mean, you know, smaller hotels. There, there's all these industries where you can tick off where there's more concentration and uh, and that has big implications. You know, there's some a lot of research that tracks that and the relationship between concentration of these industries with slow wage growth over the last 30 years. That that seems to be a factor. Um, there are, you know, a lot of, we see this on the campaign trail as there's discussion about the power of the tech platforms, discussion should antitrust law be more aggressive and stop some of these mergers that resulted in these big companies. Uh, and I think it's just a really rich, fertile thing to understand and is really forms the backdrop against which we're all trying to live our working lives and have a good, successful career. Now that brings us into the book. So that's quite a backdrop, right? Because um, in your book, it's called How to Win in a Winner-Take-All World. So why'd you write this book? I uh, I spent the last 20 years of my career becoming an economics writer, writing about these things we've just been talking about, these big picture global economic trends. And that's what I do every day. And then at night over the years, I've had countless conversations with friends, sources, uh, colleagues about how we can have a good, successful career in it. What what moves to make? How, when do you change jobs? When do you ask for a raise? When do you, uh, you know, try and, and try something completely new? Over time, what I realized is what made that set of questions around managing a career very tricky and, um, and delicate and hard in this environment, it's the flip side of what I was covering about in my day job, covering in my day job. It's, there are two sides of the same coin. Shifts in the macroeconomic environment, the way the business environment works, changes in how you can have a successful career are part of the same story. I wanted to connect those two sides and essentially write a guidebook. Okay, this is the economic backdrop we're all living in, and here's how you can make the best of that environment and have a successful, durable career. 
I think it's interesting that you are writing from an industry, your own industry specifically, that's undergone these seismic changes, right? And I sort of feel like I'm I'm late to the game, right? I didn't grow up in journalism. I grew up in financial services, also going through seismic changes in many ways. So what is it about the media landscape as you hang out with all of your friends and the Salzburgers or whoever you <laughs> hobnob with or whatever? What is it about the experience of being in this thing called media or in the newspaper business, which is shrinking or it's dead or it's all that, that got you thinking in, in a way that may have been different before you started researching the book. Yeah, so 19 years ago, I started my first job. I was a summer intern at the Washington Post on the business desk. And at that time, uh, the Washington Post was this very, very linear place. You were, I was basically one end of, a, of an assembly line. I would write a story, feed it into a series of steps where these editors would do it, it would edit it, then would go to pre-press and go to the printing plants and load it onto trucks and deliver to everybody's doorstep. And the careers people had then were also very linear. People who were ambitious knew exactly how to channel that ambition, what what constituted a raise, what constituted progressing. People who weren't as ambitious would sometimes do the same exact job for 20 years. There were people sitting next to me who had been doing pretty much the same thing the same way for decades. And as the news industry has become digitized, has had all these competitive threats, all this upheaval, uh, the way people work at a place like the Washington Post or the New York Times is completely different today. If you go to these organizations, you'll see a bunch of glassy conference rooms. You'll see a team of people with very different technical skills. You'll have traditional writers and editors like myself, but you'll also have graphic artists, user experience specialists, software engineers, uh, product people, business side people figuring out, okay, how are we going to charge for this? The ability to succeed and have a thriving career is kind of up in the air, and and it's it takes a different mindset and a different way of working than 20 years ago when I started. And as I've talked to friends in other industries, it's the same everywhere. And what is it about that, you know, that that Carol Dweck mindset that you're grabbing onto here? Yeah, look, I, I think the, um, the the power of, of mindset is, is deep-seated. And I keep going back to the word adaptability. Mm. You know, I've uh, when I look at the people who have really succeeded in this very rapidly changing environment and those who have not, the biggest difference is between those who are able to essentially drive technological change, adapt what they do, how they work, as everything else around them changes, and those who have been just too locked into one way of working. And, you know, I think when, we, when we're growing up, there's a natural instinct. If you're good at something, if you're good at this sport or that activity, you do more of it. It's nice to get positive reinforcement. I think the, the crucial lesson I learned is um, becoming the person who can push yourself into areas where you're uncomfortable. It's something that you need to practice and do over and over again. It's not a, a trait you're either born with or not. It's a it's a skill you can cultivate in yourself, that adaptability. Where do you come down on the specialist versus the generalist? So it's uh, it's funny. I, I love that this is a trade-off that people act like is one or the other. Right. I, I really I really don't think that's the way it is. So I so what I describe in the book is is a concept of uh, called uh, glue people, which are people who make a team stick together, uh, work well together. In that environment I'm describing of a bunch of people with a bunch of different skills, are you the person in the room who speaks the language of the people who come from a different background, who makes the product of that group greater than the sum of its parts? If so, you're really valuable in these kinds of organizations. But I, I'm cautious that it's not just... It's not just that generalists can be that. It can also be specialists who train themselves in understanding how other parts of the world work. So I have a concept in the book of the Pareto Optimal Employee, which is somebody who is... Don't don't gloss over that. I wanted to spend right, some time, we'll spend okay? Some time. So let's, let's go there. Okay. So 
there's an old line in, in journalism that attributed to A.J. Liebling, who was with The New Yorker, which is, I can write faster than anybody who writes better. I can write better than anybody who writes faster. I look at that as an economics writer, and it seems like A.J. Liebling was describing the idea of optimizing. Uh, I think there's an idea of this optimization that comes about when you talk about careers, too. So let's take an organization that needs two types of people. It needs um, marketing people and it needs software developers. This is a company that makes software, let's say. You know, you can imagine people who are uh, really good software engineers. And what I'm arguing is they don't need to become marketers, but they need to at least understand what marketing people do and how understanding customer needs fits into creating a good product. Then at the other extreme, you have good marketing people. They, even if you're the very best marketing person in the world, in that company, you need to understand the limitations, the, uh, what the software can do, how to communicate with those software developers to make sure you're communicating what customers demand in an effective way. Then there's people in the middle, and those are tend to be managers, maybe a product manager who understands both sides of the aisle and can make that team work together. All of those people are Pareto optimal, meaning they can't be better at one thing without being worse at the other. And all three are really valuable in this modern organization. So if you aren't that glue person, it doesn't mean you can't have aspects of pulling people together or being a role player on the team. You know, you don't need all superstars. You need some people who just can do some of the tasks that are necessary. But what you're suggesting is that if you have some of these other skills that maybe is not in your lane, then you're going to become more valuable in the end to your employer, right? Right. And you can do that in different ways in your career. You know, it's volunteering to be on a team or embedding with some different team for six months or a year. It's, you know, raising your hand for some project that an executive wants that requires you to work with people from a different part of the building who do something completely different. Uh, And I've seen over and over people who are effective at this are the ones who really have these durable, thriving careers uh, that sustain themselves no matter how the business evolves and no matter how the technology evolves in their particular industry. I was also thinking about how it can sometimes be hard for people who are later in their careers who wake up one morning and say, the world has changed. Maybe I I was sort of ready to adapt 25 years ago, but then I went into survival mode after the financial crisis, whatever, the recession. Now I'm here and I'm 55 years old. I need to work for 10, 15 more years. And I'm scared I don't have those things that Neil's describing. What can that kind of a person do to try to help him or herself? When you're earlier in life, when you're in college, in your 20s, in your first few jobs, cultivating this adaptability is something that will make you less likely to end up in that spot in 30 of years. Course. I think I think practicing change and, and uh, rolling with change over and over again makes it easier to do when you, when you get to your 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, that said, the person you're describing, look, I acknowledge this is tough. And to be completely blunt, not everybody is able to make this adaptation, um, especially if they've really gotten settled into one way of working over a 30-year career. Um, but I think it's really the only choice. Unless you happen to be in an industry where you can just kind of hang on for a few more years and then take that pension and, and get out of town, the only choices are to are to reinvent yourself as the kind of person who, who does this. And I've, and I've worked with people like this. This is not, I don't want to sound ageist. I've known plenty of people in their 50s and 60s who have been successful at doing this, but they had to you know, have have worked through their own kind of process. They were uh, tried to embrace new technologies and trying to become people who were, you know, taking a class in this and working in different ways. It doesn't come naturally to everybody, but you have to try uh, unless you think you can just hang on for a few more years. 
This is Jill on Money. Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, certified financial planner, CBS News business analyst, and host of this, the Jill on Money podcast. I'm here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Marcus is part of a storied company that's been a leader in financial services for generations. Marcus offers simple, secure access to FDIC-insured savings products, including a high-yield online savings account that earns four times the national average. Marcus also offers certificates of deposit, including a no-penalty CD. Get inspired by your savings account and start saving today to help meet your financial goals tomorrow. You can money. Visit Marcus.com forward slash save. National average data provided by Informa and accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Marcus Deposits products provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. And now back to our interview with Neil Irwin. As I'm reading the book, I I can't help but think about my own weirdo career, which, you know, started on a trading floor, then became, you know, money manager, then moved into media. And I would say that one of the best skills that was forced upon me, I did not want to do it, was learning the sales cycle from beginning to end. And the reason that I think that that's important is that when I came to media as a full-time gig, you know, more than 10 years ago, I did not come in thinking, oh, I'm a talking head and everyone should cater to me. I thought, oh, I've got all these clients. I've got a client who's called Network TV. I have a client that's called Radio. I have a client that's called Interactive. I really thought that everyone around me was a client. And what did I do with a client? I went to a client and said, how can I help you? What can I do to make your life better, easier, more productive? I always feel like sales gets a bad rap in society. (laughs) But essentially, that's what you're really talking about at the end of the day, which is how can you be of service? How can you make yourself invaluable? How can you be in that glass-enclosed conference room and really listen to what is needed and see how you can help solve a problem? Yeah, I think that's a powerful idea, and I say something more about sales. But, uh, but in general, like my thesis here is not that there's some trick to. It's not that there's one weird trick to having a successful career. It's not like you're trying to game the system. What this is about is becoming the kind of person who makes your organization better and makes your, uh, you know, makes your products better. And this is a pathway to to becoming successful that relies on you being valuable. And look, we all have to do some work to make sure our bosses recognize that we're valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, no question about that. That gets back to the sales dimension. Um, but this is really about producing a, a situation where you are driving forward positive results for your organization, whether that's a company or a nonprofit, whatever it might be. On sales, look, uh, I have a case study in the book. I went to GE Aviation where they make you know jet engines that, that power jumbo jets. And I was talking to some engineers there who talked about having to be more familiar than in the past with with the kind of marketing and sales dimension of what goes on. And so they're not, you know, they're not out playing golf with president of Boeing or anything. That's not what engineers do. They're trying to design really good jet engines. But they do have to come up with their ideas of new ways of solving some complex engineering problem and then sell that to a bunch of other engineers. And they have to understand how the sales staff, what they're hearing from airlines and, and air, you know, aerospace manufacturers about uh, the tensions in the business and, and work well with those uh, true salespeople. You know, in that kind of Pareto optimal line I'm describing, that's one of the things I think we all need to be trying to optimize for. So you go out, you research this. What is it through this process that changed in your own mindset? 
I think I went into this looking for, again, that kind of one weird trick. I thought, for example, if I dig deep enough in the in the evidence and the academic research and the consulting company's research, there's going to be some magic thing of um, you need to spend this amount of time at a company and no more. If you've been there mm-hmm. X years, you should move on. Uh, if you haven't gotten a promotion by Y years, you should move on. That's not really how it works. I, I think the most compelling lesson I learned is that the way to have a successful career is to make yourself the kind of person who these large, technologically advanced, sophisticated companies that dominate the modern economy be the kind of person who can make them, enable them to make great products. How do you feel about the generational shift that is less concerned with being a productive, important part of this team, but also wanting to take something out of that and feeling fulfilled in themselves. I'm talking about somewhat of the millennial, this values-driven kind of employee that I wish to be or that I want to save as much money as I possibly can so I can get out of working for in the rat race and doing something fulfilling. How is that shifting the landscape at these big mega corporations? So I think there's uh, a lot to be said for the idea that, you know, your work, it's not just about the salary and the benefits you receive. It's also about what this does for your own development as a person, both for future steps in your career and for your overall kind of identity and who you are. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I, I end this book with a, uh, a kind of essay on, on the idea that we all have this kind of finite amount of time as uh, waking hours during our prime working years. I ran the math from the time you're 22 to the time you're 65. If you sleep eight hours a night, you're awake for about 250,000 hours, quarter million hours. The clock is ticking. It's ticking. It's the biggest constraint of them all for, for most of us. And how you use those hours, I'm not trying to be proscriptive. And if you are the kind of person who wants to be a CEO of a major company or a partner at a law firm, yeah, you're going to be working 80 hours a week. You're not going to see your kids very much. You're going to be putting in a lot of time on the weekends. If you have a different set of priorities, I respect that. And I think getting those trade-offs right is really the key to having a fulfilling life. I was at a conference and there was a person there who was speaking about time management. And she was really interesting because she talked about all these different surveys that, you know, people feel overworked and overwhelmed. There's no doubt about that. But when you have them keep time diaries over the course of the week, they're not working nearly as much as they think they are. And so what's happening? Like, where is that time going? What's it's it's it's, you know, sort of disappearing. It's sort of like mindless spending or mindless eating. It's just that you're spending time. Her point is, like, just be more mindful about how you're spending your time. And you might find that you're actually feeling better or make more conscious choices around it. Yeah. And I think having phones on us all the time with an email popping up every five minutes is uh, kind of fuels that. Let me tell you, you know, there's a funny story about this in the book about Microsoft. And there was a unit of Microsoft that had really bad results on its uh, kind of surveys of work-life balance. So the employees in this division, this was the devices unit, they make uh, Xboxes. And uh, a bunch of really valuable engineers, really hard to replace if they were to quit. And the manager is getting nervous because they seem to be unhappy, according to the surveys. And they did some really interesting analytics trying to solve this mystery. They uh, used the metadata of calendar entries and email to figure out what were people doing differently in this unit than other parts of Microsoft that might account for their their being unhappy with their work-life balance. And the thing they eventually figured out was fascinating to me. The boss was uh, scheduling too many big meetings. Mm. They, this team, they spent an average of 27 hours a week in these big uh, kind of all-team meetings. And uh, what that meant is 
people had to squeeze kind of individual work to the evenings and weekends. So those didn't show up on their schedules because you don't usually put it on your schedule if you're going to be doing, you know, working on a project at home. But that's what was kind of making them unhappy with their work-life balance. They shortened those meetings and, uh, and, and helped solve the problem. So I think there's, you know, a real sense that, you know, in the same kind of analytical work that Microsoft does, they found that there is kind of a sweet spot for the amount of time people work. And it's not... It's not that if you work 70 hours, you're not going to be 30% better than if you work 50 hours. There's diminishing returns to a longer work week. Working, you know, a standard 40 to 50 hour work week actually is a pretty good. And you know what else is good is that giving employees and managing employees building in flexibility in some way, shape or form. Because I think that if you're looking at how can I better optimize my time, if I feel like I'm always responding to a thousand different niggling, annoying requests, then it's hard for me to then raise my hand and be like, oh, I want to be on that team or, you know, employee network, blah, 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 blah. You don't want to do that because you feel so, I don't know, you feel like almost barraged by by inquiries. So I think that there has to be also some recognition if that if you you want to be a great employee or you want to be a really smart person, but also that managers have to try to create an environment where those people can rise up. I even think there's some small things that managers can do to to help have that culture. Uh, you know, suppose you as a manager happen to like getting work done on a Sunday afternoon. That's just how you work. Uh, you're catching up on emails, little things you had in mind. Maybe you don't hit send on those emails on Sunday afternoon because if, if you're a worker and you're, you check, you see your email on Sunday night and you have a email from the boss waiting, even if you don't respond to it, then you're stressed out all night thinking about this thing the boss is asking you to do. So why don't you just write those emails, draft them, have them automated to all send at 8 a.m. on Monday. Nothing in the world wrong with that. It's the start of the work week. Uh, it sends a signal that, like, this is for work. This isn't some urgent thing that you have to do on a Sunday. Uh, but I think everybody being conscious of that and conscious of those trade-offs and balances is, is just super important. There has to also be this idea that, like, well, I'm setting boundaries. Yeah. You know, you call me for an emergency. This, whatever this is, is not an emergency. Well, I think we all know in, in professional settings, there are times when it genuinely is all hands on deck. Cancel your vacations. Cancel your weekend plans. We have to close this big deal. We have to release this big product. We have to, in my industry, launch this big story. And at those points, yes, you drop things. Um, but I think the idea that it's always that kind of moment, it's always that kind of emergency, is just not true. And I think we, um, there's a tendency to, you know, we want to feel a sense of importance, so we want to feel like we're essential to everything that our organization does. But I, I think that's really not the way the world is. What if you have, let's let's say you're you're brought to your alma mater and you want to, they're going to say, here's the freshman class. How do you instill adaptability into younger people who are just starting out in their sort of grown-up lives. So I think the great thing you have going for you if you're in your college years, uh, again, first few jobs, grad school, you know, entry-level jobs in your 20s, is that the stakes of failing in something are relatively low. The, the key is to take advantage of that. So the question is, ask yourself, all right, what are the things that I'm naturally drawn to that I'm already going to focus on? And what are the ways I can broaden my experience outside that zone as well. So, you know, if you're a math person and you are mainly focused on engineering or, or hard science kind of work, you know, should you go out for a school play? Should you write something for the college newspaper? Should you, uh, you know, take a public speaking class? Uh, I think that's the kind of thing that can be really beneficial because I hear this over and over. If you're a good engineer who can also communicate well, you're invaluable. You're immensely valuable, much more so than a, the same engineer with the same engineering talents who just wants to burrow down in a corner and, and keep to themselves. 
you know, it works the other way too. I'm a writer. I wish with hindsight that if that when I was in college, I had uh, stretched myself more in terms of, of computer science and programming, maybe in terms of uh, econometrics and, and more kind of advanced uh, statistical analysis. It's a lot harder for me to do that now. I'm 40 years old than it would have been if I had stretched myself in that way when I was 22. FYI, gets a little harder as you get older. <laughs> um, all right. Now, we started the interview and I said best financial or career decision. Yep. What about the worst? What was the worst? Um, look, I've been really lucky. I haven't had any uh, disastrous uh, missteps in, in my career. I've been very fortunate in a lot of ways. I think I was, I made some pretty bad mistakes in my early years, in my 20s. I was, again, I was working as a financial reporter at the Washington Post, and I was so ambitious and I was so eager to kind of get the next thing and the next step that I think I neglected some real basics around learning everything I could in the jobs I was already in. I was mm. so, you know, I think when you're young, when you're 23, 24, 25, every year feels like such a big deal. The idea of staying in one job for two or three years feels like an eternity. I was impatient. I think that graded on my bosses at the time who, um, you know, I think I suffered for it because they viewed me as kind of impatient and uh, in too much of a hurry. And I think I could have learned more from those jobs if I had had a slightly different mindset then. This is a, a line somebody uses in the book that I really strongly believe. In your early career jobs, be hungry for experience and hungry for, you know, the, the difference between this job or that job, a few thousand dollars at that age, it's not it's not about money. It's not about your title. It's about what you are learning and what you're doing in your 20s to set the stage to do cool stuff later on. You're listening to Jill on Money. Okay, it's time for our favorite post-interview segment. Also, the only post-interview segment. It's called The Marcus Minute, presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Neil Irwin is here to play. You ready? I'm ready. What's one word to describe your relationship with money? Fascinating. What's always worth spending on? A martini. What's the dumbest thing you've spent money on? The third martini. How much do you spend on a haircut? $60. Whose face would you put on the dollar bill? Uh, Alexander Hamilton. It's your last day on earth. You've got 100 bucks in your pocket. What would you do with it? Throw a party. Neil... The book is How to Win. Neil Irwin, the New York Times bestselling author of The Alchemist. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jill. Thanks to Neil Irwin. It was great to have him join us. Go check out his column for The New York Times and his book, How to Win in a Winner-Take-All World. We drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. Sometimes we sneak a bonus in, too. If you would like to get on the air and ask us a financial question, send us an email. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. You can subscribe to the Jill on Money podcast anywhere you get your favorite stuff. Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play. We don't care. Just subscribe. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13. And the show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week.